Well, please open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We've been in there for a while. Uh, We're going to look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Now, last week, I think we saw one of the most encouraging passages in all of uh, Scripture. Because in the passage we looked at last week, we saw that Christ understands our weaknesses and he sympathizes with us. Uh, Now, friends, I don't know about you, but for me, I I really um, do well when I have the sympathy of others. Uh, A person doesn't necessarily have to um, uh, do anything necessarily to help my situation, but if I just know that they understand me, wow, that's, you know, wind in my sails. Perhaps it makes a bit too big of a difference, but... uh, I have much more confidence and perseverance. Well, in the passage we looked at last week, we saw that none other than Jesus Christ sympathizes with us. And that's because he has been tempted in every way like we are tempted. And and friends, that means that there is not a situation that you could find yourself on planet Earth that Jesus can't look down and say, yep, I know exactly what that feels like. He knows our temptations. He he sympathizes with us. And he doesn't just know our temptations abstractly, but he knows it personally and experientially. And even more wonderful than that, he doesn't simply sympathize with us, but he actually helps us. He invites us to come boldly before his throne of grace where we receive from him mercy and grace in our time of need. Friends, I don't know about you, but that passage we looked at last week encouraged me greatly, and I prayed all week that it would be encouraging you as you live out your life in various situations. Well, the passage for this morning is basically a second helping of that really exact same kind of encouragement we saw last week. But as uh, you may have found in the book of Hebrews, as we've gone through it, uh, sometimes the author isn't uh, maybe as clear as you would like him to be. And sometimes the passage takes a little bit of um, untangling and, and working before we figure out what's really going on. So this passage um, will require a bit of work, but uh, I think it's, the effort we give to it is worthwhile because we see great encouragement In this passage. So let me read the passage, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Follow along with me if you can. For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset by weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when he is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death 
and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. O Lord, we ask for your help. Father, help us to understand what you have laid out here in your word. And Lord, we pray that in your word we would appreciate more deeply the person of Christ, who you have fashioned him to be, not simply for his own self-glorification, but yet that he would benefit us. He would minister to us in our time of need. So, Father, we pray that you would connect our need with the person of Christ, and we would see how you have provided for us so richly and abundantly. Lord, we pray that you would redefine our sense of need. Lord, we come here this morning thinking that we need this change or that change in our lives. Lord, recalibrate our lives, that we would see how we need you and how you have miraculously and wonderfully, graciously provided all that we need in you, in Christ, for us. And we pray that we would grow deeply uh, in our faith in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, even as I say this passage uh, is a second helping of the same encouragement we've seen, um, I understand if the train of thought through this passage is not necessarily immediately obvious. Uh, we could have trouble following each step of the way. And if you're new to the Bible, you might have no clue whatsoever what a Melchizedek is. And if so, I have sympathy with you. We'll we'll get to him eventually. But um, we'll try to figure out what this passage says. Uh, Let me start this way. It's kind of a, uh, to get our bearings as we walk into this passage. If you remember from what we looked at last week, we saw that the idea of a high priest was very important. And I already mentioned some of the great encouragement that we have in Christ, his his sympathy, his invitation for us to come freely before the throne of grace. If you remember from last week, though, all of that sympathy and encouragement was keyed to Christ's role as high priest. The passage began last week, we have a great high priest. So everything that is good about Christ for us stems from him being our high priest. Now, the passage today, and really, if you read through the book of Hebrews, which I hope you do, you'll see that for the next several chapters, the author is developing the idea of Christ as our high priest. And one of the ways in which the author develops Christ as our high priest is by contrasting, comparing and contrasting Christ with the high priests of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. You see, the high priest was an office that was set forth in the Old Testament. And this passage that I just read for us, basically what it's doing is it's looking back at the role of a priest in the the Old Testament and, and helping us see Christ in light of that role so that we can understand him better, so that we can draw more encouragement from him. And, and how do we learn about Christ by looking at the high priests of old? Well, well, let me give you kind of an analogy that I think will, will hopefully make sense for us. One of the early church pastors said something that I 
said something about the nature of God that I think is just so profound. He said this. He said, God is light, but he is like no light we have ever seen. God is light. I mean, that's a biblical statement. It comes from 1 John 1, chapter 5. The category of light reveals something about the nature of God. He is pure. He shines out into darkness. But he's like no light we have ever seen. So ultimately, God isn't light. (laughs) I mean, he is light, but he doesn't fit in that category of light. If we try to put him in the category of light and see God as a type of light, we will have radically misunderstood him. He squashes that category. He shatters that category. And in shattering that category of light, we understand more of who he is. And so also, this passage this morning is basically telling us that Jesus is a great high priest, but he's like no other high priest God's people have ever known. He he shatters the category of a high priest. And in so doing, in shattering the category of a high priest, he reveals more about who he is. Or or there's another way to look at this same reality. Um, Have you ever wondered why the Old Testament is there and why it's so big? I mean, really, if the point of the Bible is about Jesus, why spend two-thirds about all this stuff that comes before who he is? Uh, The answer, I believe, is because God uses the the two-third section to form in our minds categories so that when Christ shows up on the scene, we'll know who he is. Categories like prophet, priest, and king. We see them in the Old Testament. Christ shows up on the scene, we know who he is by those categories. But, But get this, he doesn't really fit those categories. So when he shows up on the scene, he just obliterates those categories. He, he reveals himself to be in a category all of his own. And by, by crushing those categories, we understand even more of who he is. So with that in mind, let's look at this passage and explore how Christ is a high priest, but, any, but unlike any high priest that God's people have ever known. And I think we will see three ways that he really blows that category of high priest apart. Um, the first way is that Christ receives far greater glory. Christ receives far greater glory. We see this greater glory in the way the author compares how regular, you know, Old Testament priests were appointed compared to how Christ is appointed. Look there with me at verse 1. Every high priest... Is the author is giving this basic knowledge of a high priest. Every high priest is chosen among men and appointed on behalf of men in relation to God. So the priests are chosen among people. That means they have to be human. Basic criteria for being a priest is to be a human. And now skip down, but, but that's not enough. Not every human is a high priest. Skip down to verse 4. And no one takes this honor, the honor of a high priest, upon himself, but only when he is called by God, just as Aaron was. So priests are ordinary men, but appointed in a position of great honor. They couldn't aspire to that position themselves. They couldn't try to climb the religious ladder to, to eventually get up to that place. But God could appoint them. And God could lift them up to that great honor. 
Listen to the account here of God appointing Aaron and his sons as priests. God instructs Moses thusly. He says, bring near to you Aaron, your brother and his sons, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, who I have filled with a spirit of skill, and they shall make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. So in that passage there from the Old Testament, God is establishing priests. And these priests, when they were acting in their role as priests, were set apart in a special way for God. They were God's priests. And their priestly garments were very significant. Children, you can see that in your children's bulletin, right? You have a picture there of a priest. He has has the special clothes on. And they were clothes that revealed his glory and beauty. And no one could aspire to that place of honor themselves. God had to appoint them. And this fits with the broader idea that we see throughout the Bible, that God is the one who institutes the plan of salvation. People are not saved by reaching up to God. Rather, people are saved because God reaches down to them. The priesthood is entirely God's idea. And it's God who lifts people up to that great honor and in so doing also saves the people as well. Now, So that's what the priests were. They were people, men, appointed by God, lifted up to an honor, bestowed with this glory, and used in a special way for God's purposes. Now, how do they compare with with Christ? Well, look there at verse 5. First, there's a similarity. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be a high priest, but was appointed by God. Now, there's a similarity. Um, Christ also didn't exalt himself to be a high priest. But, but there's also quite a difference here. Because the high priests were just ordinary men who God raised up into this, this given this position of glory. Christ, the Son of God, before he could be an ordinary man, had to first descend from his position of high honor as God. He had to empty himself, the Bible says. That is... He, he had to give up the outward display of his glory and come down in the form of a man. So, so for ordinary people, they, when they became priests, they were just lifted up to this higher honor. Christ, to be a priest, he had to be a man. He was first humbled. He emptied himself. And what we see in the Gospels is that Christ is never seeking honor and glory for himself. He's always seeking to obey the one who sent him and to spend his life for the sake of others. But God appointed Christ to a place of high honor, right? Christ emptied himself. Christ came down in order to take on the form of a a servant, to take on human form. And by taking on human form, he was able to be a priest. But then, because he is a perfect priest, because he fully obeyed God and all that God asked him to do, then God put him on a position of high honor. Notice it says here that he said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, now here's where this passage gets a little bit tricky to follow. So you have to have your thinking caps on. 
think a little bit harder than it takes to, you know, watch a TV show, try to follow the logic of this passage. What I think is going on here is that the author is proving from the Old Testament. The author is looking at the honor that Christ receives as a priest, because priests receive honor. Christ is a priest, and Christ receives honor as a priest, but it's not the honor of a normal priest. It's not the honor of having the robe and, and looking as decked out as he does and being able to go into the physical temple. He appeals to Psalm 2, and he's the passage that says, Today I have begotten you, which, if we read it in context and compare it to the New Testament, that's a reference to Christ's resurrection and glorification, and Christ sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and given all rule and authority. Psalm 2 is about the kingship of Christ. It really doesn't say much about his priesthood. Also, Psalm 110, which is another passage that the, uh, the author here quotes, when he says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is also mostly about the, the glory of Christ as king. It has that little phrase there about a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. So what's going on here is that the author is talking about the glory that Christ receives as the great high priest, but he's, he's couching that glory in terms of Christ's kingship. Now, you have to understand that from the moment Christ became incarnate on planet Earth, he was a priest. He was most certainly a priest when he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. The priest is the one who offers gifts and sacrifice for sin. Christ offered himself. He was a priest also when he, when he died on the cross. But here, what this passage is referring to is that Christ is a priest in glory, in the resurrection from the dead, and when he sits upon the right hand of God, he's then a priest that is, is given the honor that accords with the office that he holds. He's given a priest... He's made a priest who is also king. And here's where the category of priest begins to shatter. He's not just any priest. He holds both offices. He holds the office of priest and king and prophet as well. And friends, that should be encouraging to us because it means that the one who leads us is also our priest who sacrifices himself for us that he may lead us into glory. The one who speaks to us is the one who died on the cross for us, that his words might be words of grace and mercy. That's why his throne is of grace and mercy, and he lets us come there in our time of need. Now, let me just bring out a couple of application points from this. First of all, because Jesus is the great high priest, we do not need priests on earth now. Some people, it's kind of interesting, they find out that I work at a church, and they say, oh, so you must be a priest, to which I want to say, no, 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 no. Um, You got that all wrong. I'm not a priest. Uh, Jesus was the perfect priest. He's the only priest we need. He's accomplished that office so well that, that we don't need that anymore. The Catholic Church teaches that priests today function in the same category as they did in the Old Testament. But if we look at Scripture, there's no place in the New Testament for priests in local churches. There's only one priest that the New Testament really talks about, and that is Jesus. But not only that, the whole 
focus of the book of Hebrews is that Christ as the high priest is better than all those other priests of the Old Testament. So, so if we have him, why would we want to go back to the old system? But there's another much more personal application here for us. That is that, friends, we should be thrilled to have such a high priest that is bestowed with this glory. The priests of old were given great glory and honor, not for their own sake, but for the sake of the people. It says that there on verse 1, that the priests acted on behalf of men in relation to God. And therefore, when the priest would go into the place of God's presence, it was a public event. In the Old Testament, when the priest would go into the temple, people would gather around and watch. They would see their priest emerge from his tent, all decked out, looking spectacular. And they would be filled with a sense of gladness that such a one as that was appointed to be their high priest. And they would be glad when they would see their high priest proceed into the temple. And then the people would wait outside silently as the priest did their sacrifice. And they would wait till the priest came out and give the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine on you. That was the blessing that the priest would give. And then the people would be happy because this was their high priest. And friends, how much more should we be encouraged at the high priest that we have in Christ? We should be thrilled as we read in the Gospels about how Christ came out of the grave, not in a a robe that had some gold on it, but rather in a glorified body. And he proceeds all the way into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. He is there. Friends, if if the, the spectacular nature of the high priest in the Old Testament gave the people encouragement, how much more should the high priestly ministry of Christ give us encouragement. The only difference is that we should not be silent as our priest is in the sanctuary. We should rather talk often and loudly about him to others. We should, as the apostle uh, tells us here, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. We should, as the author goes on to say, fix our eyes on him. Jesus as our high priest, should loom large in our thoughts and our imagination because he is given the honor and glory in his priestly office as being the king over all, the resurrected son, and we should be encouraged by who he is. Do you do that? Are you really encouraged by Jesus? But Christ shatters the category of a high priest in a different way. And that is that he identifies with us more deeply. So that's point number two. Jesus identifies with us more deeply. The, old, the priests of old identified with the people. We see that there in verse 2. Notice in verse 2, the priests deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he himself is beset by weakness. Another way you might be able to translate that more bluntly is to say that the priests didn't get angry with people when they forgot things and went astray and did stupid stuff, because the priest knows that he forgets things and goes astray and does stupid stuff. And so the priest, because they know their own weaknesses, they know their own propensities to sin, should be very willing to make sacrifices on behalf of the people. There's a wee bit of application there for us. The sin of others should not shock us, 
We should always be willing to help those who are caught in sin because if we're truly honest with ourselves, we realize that we are capable of that sin too. And it's not that it's not serious. No, no, it's very serious. Because it's serious, we should, we should help. I remember hearing one person say once, if you are shocked by sin, it's because you're self-righteous. I think there's a little bit of truth in that. The high priest of old should ideally not be self-righteous, and thus they should not be turned off by the people's sin, but rather welcome the the people who sin so they would make sacrifices for them. Christ also identifies with the people, but in a very different way. Christ, of course, did not have the weakness of sin. But there's another very important and very special way that he identifies with us. Notice there in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries to the one and tears to the one who can save him from death. In other words, when Jesus was on earth, he prayed the prayer of supplication. That is, he, he pleaded with God for things. And it seems here the way that the author describes God is that he, he pleaded with God that God would save his life. He prayed that the suffering and pain that he saw coming in his direction would not get him, but would somehow pass around him. And he didn't pray a nice, wimpy, polite prayer like, Oh, Lord, if it be your will, may I be saved? No, he didn't pray that way. It says he prayed with loud cries and tears. I don't know exactly what that looked like, but but perhaps he screamed until his voice was raw. And we know from the Gospels that he he prayed with such agony in the Garden of Gethsemane that that he sweat drops of blood, which is actually a real condition people experience when they're under such a great weight of stress. Jesus saw that he was going to take the full fury of God's wrath for sin, and, and he revolted against that idea. As a human, you know, how could he not revolt against that idea? So, so Jesus pleaded with God in, in loud cries and tears. And the text says that he was heard because of his reverence. I think that's a reference to the idea that we see all throughout the Psalms, that God hears the prayers of those who trust him and fear him. In other words, Jesus was the kind of person to whom God would listen. Jesus cried to his Father in faith, and God heard his prayers. But did he answer this prayer? And if you just had this verse, we might be led to believe that, well, Jesus prayed to the God who was able to save him, and God listened so logically, therefore, but God didn't save him. And God, it says, did not spare his son, but gave him up. And I think this is the right interpretation of this verse, because immediately after, um, the the author talks about how Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. So Jesus prayed for deliverance, but Jesus experienced suffering. So are you beginning to see how Jesus identifies with us here? Maybe you, you don't see how Jesus identifies with you here, because maybe for you, you pray and you, you always get the answer you want immediately. You pray for good health and you never get sick and, And you ask God for a fully sanctified spouse who thinks you're wonderful, and he just gives one to you. And you ask God for self-parenting children who always do the dishes, and, and they're yours. And you never have to deal with uncertainty in your life or relational conflict, because with the least bit of discomfort, 
You just pray and God pushes it out of the way. If that's you, I'm sorry that Jesus just can't identify with you. But for the rest of us, who know what it's like to plead with God, but feel as if our prayers don't make it any higher than the ceiling, be encouraged that Jesus knows that experience too. As I said before, this passage is sort of like a second helping of the same encouragement we saw last week. Last week we saw that Jesus was tempted in every way like us. And this week we see that that temptation includes the feeling of despair and isolation that comes when God seems silent. To cry to God and to feel like we do not get an answer. Well, friends, I I pray that Jesus' example here encourages us. You could think of it this way. Jesus is sort of the founding member of the I don't get my prayers answered club. And when we experience not getting our prayers answered in the way we want, we get to join him in that club. And then we realize that it is not populated by a bunch of misfit Christians who all have something wrong with them, which is why they don't get their prayers answered. But Jesus himself, along with, as we'll see later in chapter Uh, 11 of Hebrews, a great cloud of witnesses. And they all encourage us to keep on persevering and keep on believing that God is good. Keep on crying to him in faith. Because the suffering and pain will not last forever. And there is one more way that Jesus shatters the conception of a priest in here. And that is, lastly, point number three, he gives us a deeper and more lasting salvation. He gives us a deeper and more lasting salvation. Look there at verse 3 to see how the priests of old would bring salvation. Because of this, that is because of the weakness of sin, he, the priest, is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So the high priest is weak. And I take that weakness to be the the sinful weakness, which is why it requires a sacrifice. So before the the priest can sacrifice to cover the people, he's got to first cover himself with a sacrifice. And if we read the rest of the book of Hebrews, we see that, you know what? Those sacrifices actually didn't get rid of sin anyway. And the reason we know that they didn't get rid of sin is because if they did, then the priest would not have to offer them over and over again. But because... Uh, They they didn't get rid of sin. He did offer them over and over again. So the best that the priest of old could do was to offer a temporary provision for sin over and over again. And he'd have to first do it for himself before he did it for the people. That's how the priest would offer salvation. Now, what does Jesus do? Well, look here at verses 8 and 9. Although he was a son, He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. You see, the author is drawing a contrast between the weakness, the sinful weakness of the priest of old and the perfection of Christ. The priests were weak and they had to sacrifice for their own sin, but Christ did not sin. He suffered, to be sure. He had the the human weakness that makes him liable to suffering. But he learned obedience through that suffering, and he came out on the other end as perfect. Now, we need to just do a little bit of theological wrestling with this. How does Jesus, who is God, become perfect? I mean, he's God, right? So by definition, he's perfect. 
How does he then become perfect? Well, I think the answer is, what we've already covered, is that he became man. He lived his life entirely in a human condition. He didn't cease to be God, but he became also man and lived his life as a human. And only in his human condition can he experience praying to God and not getting the answer that he wants. Only in the human state can he experience suffering. So only in the human state can he learn what it's like to obey God in the midst of suffering. So the perfection in view here is not the perfection of his pure being as God. He already had that perfection. But it's also his role as the God-man, as the perfect priest. And having become perfect, a perfect priest as the God-man, he is then the source of eternal salvation for all who will believe in him, or all who will obey him. In other words, because he is perfect, God accepts the offering of himself. Because Christ is perfect, God accepts Christ offering himself as the full and final sacrifice for sin once and for all. This is what he does that the old priests of old could never do. Because he's perfect, he doesn't offer sacrifices repeatedly, but he offers himself as the perfect sacrifice once for all time. Listen to the way the author of Hebrews describes this later on in the book. He says, By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Because he is a perfect priest, he can give God a perfect sacrifice, a perfect offering to perfect the people. Now, friends, I want to particularly apply this to you if you're here and you're you're not a Christian. I pray that the truth here helps you see Christ more clearly. There's, you have to know this. If, if you're thinking, what does it look like for me to become a Christian? Well, there's a few things that need to come together. First, you need to actually hear the gospel message. And you can put a check mark by that because you're, you're here, right? So you're hearing this truth that, that, Jesus, that, that you need, a, uh, that you've sinned against God and you need a a Savior who will take away the penalty that you deserve, and and that Jesus came to be that perfect sacrifice to die on the cross on your behalf. You've heard the message of the gospel. But you also need to believe the facts about the message are true. You need to believe that Jesus did really do what the Bible says he does. He really did rise again. He really is God. And his sacrifice on the cross really was in your place. But there's one more component that is really most essential of all, and that is that you actually must entrust yourself to him. You must trust him as a person. Becoming a Christian is not just believing that certain facts are true, that maybe the world would deny. It involves that, but it also means entrusting yourself to Christ to save you. And my non-Christian friends, I hope what you've seen here today about the glory of Christ, how he's appointed to be our high priest, friends, I hope that encourages you to entrust yourself to him. Why not entrust yourself to him? And it seems so clearly from these verses that Christ is infinitely trustworthy. It seems that he will not let you down. He will not cast you out. He will deal gently with you, sympathetically with you. He is able to save you. He is willing to save you. Why not entrust yourself to him? And friends, if you have believed in Christ, 
I pray that this truth about him as the great high priest who perfects the final and perfect uh, salvation for you, I pray that it would help your faith grow more deeply. You know, you, you've, I assume you've probably experienced uh, trusting somebody a little, and then in trusting them a little, it gives you a context to trust them all the more. And you see, we believe Jesus at the outset of our Christian life. We trust Jesus at the outset of our Christian life. But then God's plan for our Christian life is that we would grow in trusting him more and more. That's what the Bible talks about when it it talks about growing in our faith. So friends at Greenbelt Baptist Church, let your faith grow. Let them go, the roots of your faith, go deeper and deeper into the person of Christ. And then, listen to this. We can obey him more. And that relates to the somewhat curious phrase we see there at the end of verse 9. Notice that the author says, He became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. That might concern some people who know that salvation is by faith, not by works. Our obedience to God cannot earn us salvation. We receive it as a gift. So why does the author say here that it's for those who obey him, not those who believe in him? Well, I think the answer is that the author here is not teaching us how it is that we come to know Christ. Rather, he's teaching us about the character of those who do know him, the character of those who who are saved. Think of it this way. Bunnies hop, fish swim, birds fly, and those who are saved by Christ obey him. That's, that's what we do. And the reason why we do that is entirely because of the kind of salvation that he provides. It's not a get out of jail free card with no other ben- or get out of hell free card with no other benefits. The salvation involves having a great high priest who sympathizes with us and who's there to help us. He helps us in our weaknesses so that we can actually obey him. He shares his life with us, so we can utilize that life, draw on that life, and obey him in the tough areas of the life that he calls us to live. You could put it this way. A participation with Christ involves imitation of Christ. There's no true participation without real imitation. In other words... If we want to claim to be a member of Christ's, I don't always have my prayers answered club, of which Christ is a founding member, and if we want to have fellowship with him in that experience of suffering, then we need to respond to that experience of suffering in the same way Christ did, which was obediently. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And those of us who follow him must learn obedience too. But let us not think that our task is nearly as hard as his, because we have something that he didn't have, him. We have him who goes out before us, in front of us. Jesus is not calling us to go down any road that he himself did not go down first. We are not the trailblazers figuring out the Christian life all on our own. We walk behind him who went that way ahead of us. And we who participate in his salvation must follow his example. So friends, where in your life today are you not obeying Jesus? 
Where are you responding to suffering with maybe bitterness or resentment? And not patient trust. It doesn't mean that you don't cry out to God with with loud cries and tears. No, you do. But you believe that he's good. And you believe that he is working a good purpose. There's no participation without imitation. So if we are going to be saved by Jesus, we must follow him. Follow him, Jesus. Follow me, Jesus says. And we follow him through the paths of suffering. We can rest assured that he will bring us out on the other side to glory. He is the captain of our salvation, not only in the experience of suffering that he walks us through, but also that experience of glory. He is the Son of God, and we are sons and daughters in him. We experience the glory that he has as the great high priest with him. Thus, we can be assured that if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. So let's keep looking to Jesus and follow him. Let's pray.